We do not live in a simple world. And I think it's a mistake to pretend that we do. And science can't provide all the answers and the scientific method can't provide all the answers. And so I try to find opportunities in all of my outreach to celebrate that and to highlight that and to remove this fake assumption that science can give an authoritative definitive answer and we never need to debate it again because that's simply not how the world works and it's not how science works the rational view is a weekly series hosted by me dr alan scott providing a rational evidence-based perspective on important societal issues produced by soapbox media the world needs evidence-based public policy now more than ever. Making the right decisions should not be partisan politics. Please help spread the rational view by going to patron.podbean.com slash the rational view. Together, we can make a better future. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. This is a cool science episode that I haven't done in a long time. I'm going to be interviewing a theoretical cosmologist, and we can learn a little bit about the universe and our place in it. Uh, so please stay tuned. If you like what you're hearing, hit like in your podcast. I hope you enjoy it, uh, and thank you so much for listening. Dr. Paul Sutter is a theoretical cosmologist at the Institute for Advanced Computational Science at Stony Brook University and a guest researcher at the Center for Computational Astrophysics at the Flatiron Institute in New York City. He's an award-winning science communicator, having authored two books, Your Place in the Universe and How to Die in Space, and hosting several TV shows, including How the Universe Works, Space Out, and the edge of knowledge. He also writes and hosts his own Ask a Spaceman podcast, which has been download downloaded over 7 million times. Lastly, Paul is a globally recognized leader in the intersection of art and science. His latest collaboration is a product with Siren Modern Dance that explores the nature of time which he recently performed as a United States cultural ambassador at the World Expo in Dubai. Dr. Sutter, welcome to The Rational View. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So we actually connected through a, a common friend, uh, Andy Vasily, of the Run Your Life podcast. Uh, so how do you know Andy? Oh, he reached out to me randomly one day after uh, an article of mine appeared on the internet, uh, exploring the nature of quantum mechanics and uncertainty and how we can uh, take some lessons from quantum mechanics and the fundamental uncertainty that we see in the mi microscopic world and apply it to the macroscopic world. So that was my article, and Andy reached out to me for an interview. Oh, very cool. Yeah, he's uh, actually, uh, Andy and I go way back. We were we actually went to public school together uh, in, in ancient history. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you're, you're a professional cosmologist, effectively. Could you tell us a little bit about your background? How, how old were you when you decided you wanted to be a, an astronomer or a cosmologist? Oh, actually, I was halfway through college, and I, I, it's one of those things where I'd, I'd always been interested in science topics of, of so many different kinds. I was always reading books as a kid, 
uh, and as a teenager. Um, but I always assumed that science was done by other smarter people, just not me, that I was, I, there's no way I could be a scientist. Uh, but I was still a super nerd at heart. So I went to college for computer science and computer programming and software engineering. And uh, three years in, I took an elective in astronomy and I fell in love with uh, you know, all this knowledge that I had been reading about for years. And I talked to the professor and he said, yeah, you, you can be a scientist. <laughs> you just switch majors. That's all it takes. And uh, within two weeks, I switched majors to physics and I never looked back. Oh, wow. Nice. Nice. So you are a practicing cosmologist, effectively. Uh, could you tell us a bit about your, your research? What, what's hot in your field? <laughs> uh, the Big Bang is super hot these days. Now, it's... Uh, a uh, cosmologist is a scientist. It's a branch of astrophysics, which is a branch of physics, uh, that studies the whole entire universe. So a cosmologist, we try to understand the origins and evolution, content, future history, uh, the whole deal. If it comes to the very largest of scales, that's what we're interested in. And um, in and my interests in cosmology have taken me in many wonderful directions. And um, one of my favorite things is that you know, no two projects look the same, uh, no two research interests look the same. So I have studied uh, the earliest light to emerge out of the Big Bang. I've studied uh, techniques, developed techniques to identify the first stars to appear in the universe. I have studied. Uh, cosmic voids, which are these vast, expansive regions of almost nothing that dominate the volume of the universe. I've developed techniques to find cosmic voids and linked them to other things in cosmology that we're interested in, so using them to understand the evolution of the universe. And I've studied uh, black holes and the, re the interactions between black holes and their environment. So it, one of the, my favorite things about being a scientist is that you get to follow your curiosity. And if you're wondering about something, um, you know, there's no Wikipedia article. There's no reference. There is some previous research, but usually you develop a question that uh, no one's ever asked before. And so you get to go out and create the answer yourself. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. Um, so we've recently... Uh, humanity has recently launched the James Webb Space Telescope, and it's looking back at the first galaxies in, in the infrared that have been redshifted uh, out of the visible spectrum. And, and you know, these first galaxies, uh, results are coming back like there are large structures, very fully formed structures of galaxies, you know, just hundreds of millions of years after the, the Big Bang. Have you been following this? Like, what does this mean for, for your field? There seems to be a lot of... Uh, uh, you know, observational data now that we can adjust our theories with. Is, is this stuff exciting and, and different? Or are we changing our, our ideas about the evolution of galaxies from, from this work? Uh, yeah, so th there's a multi-layered answer here. Uh, the James Webb, one of its primary missions is, like you mentioned, to probe the very early universe, to uh, take images and study some of the first galaxies to form and appear in our universe. And this is a relatively unexplored 
era of our universe. We actually have a lot of information from much earlier times that light has survived to us. And then we have a lot of information from relatively recent and nearby times uh, because everything's right there. Uh, but the middle bits are hard for us to observe. And so one of, that's one of the reasons we built this giant space telescope is to be able to directly observe those galaxies. Uh, I've been paying attention to the headlines in the news stories. Uh, as usual, things are much more nuanced and complex and actually much less exciting than uh, the headlines would lead you to believe. So prior to the James Webb, we had already evidence that uh, in our most naive and simple models, of not just the evolution and growth of the universe, but the development of the first stars and galaxies. When we just take a stab at how quickly uh, galaxies form and stars start appearing and living and dying, uh, we had already figured, uh, or we had already realized, that galaxies tend to form uh, much faster than our naive models would lead us to believe. Uh, we had already evidence for that um, observationally. And one of the reasons we built the James Webb was to figure out what's going on. So these observations that the James Webb is making, these are the observations that James Webb are supposed to make. This is why we spent $10 billion uh, to answer some of these questions of what is going on in the early universe, what leads to the rapid formation of galaxies. Uh, there's a few theories out there. There are a few ideas. Some are pretty boring. Some are rather exotic. Uh, but this is the laboratory where we test those ideas. So when the headlines say, oh, we find a galaxy that's way too massive, uh, one is more complicated than that because uh, we don't necessarily have precise distance measures to these galaxies. So we don't know exactly how old they are. And two, like, yeah, we already knew that, that galaxies form much more quickly than we would think, and we're trying to figure out why. Uh, nothing here, uh, nothing that we've seen with the James Webb uh, rocks our fundamental assumptions of the Big Bang model and the growth of structure in our universe. Uh, this, is, this is very clearly, and we've known for a couple decades now, uh, you know, we don't understand the detailed astrophysical processes that lead to the formation of galaxies in the early universe. And that's a very, very interesting scientific question, especially for cosmologists. Doesn't really package neatly into a headline. Um, so, so there's a little bit of distortion going on there. Yeah, all of the headlines are... are are there for clickbait. So you do have to drill down. And so luckily I have a cosmologist on the show and I can learn something. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's pretty cool. Um, the one thing that I'm really interested in is, is these large, you know, massive black holes, the centers of galaxies that seem to be associated with, with galaxies. And then how do they form? What, what's the, what's current thinking on how these massive black holes form at the centers of all these galaxies? Yeah, one of the coolest things we've learned over the past couple decades is that every galaxy, essentially every galaxy, there are always exceptions, but essentially every galaxy is home to a supermassive black hole. And we don't use that word lightly. We're talking black holes 
at least millions of times more massive than the sun and reaching up into the hundreds of billions of solar masses. So these things really, really are big. And we've discovered that they seem to be related to their host galaxy. So they don't just sit there and lead independent lives. It seems that the bigger the galaxy, the bigger the black hole. And there's a very nice relationship between the two. And this is actually how we got some of our first information that galaxy evolution proceeded relatively quickly in the early universe is we, uh, prior to James Webb, we couldn't see individual galaxies, but we could see these objects that we call quasars. And quasars are powered by supermassive black holes. When material falls into the black hole, it crams into a really tiny volume. Lots of energy happens, lots of heat happens, and they glow in incredibly brightly, millions of times more brightly than a typical galaxy. And so we've been observing quasars uh, for a long time from the very early universe. And in order to get quasars in the very early universe, you need giant black holes in the very early universe. And so right away, the question was, how do you get these giant black holes appearing so quickly? And there's really, uh, as far as we know, we have one confirmed method for creating black holes, and that's through the deaths of massive stars. That giant star dies, leaves behind a, a black hole a few times the mass of the sun. Now, if you want to upgrade that to supermassive status, then it needs to either merge with other black holes, or it needs to feed on a lot of gas. And there's a challenge with both of those. With merging black holes, uh, the black holes actually have to meet. There have to be enough black holes formed that they can just find themselves or find each other, merge together. Uh, so you need a, a big population of smaller black holes in order to get them to merge frequently. And then with gas, gas does this funny thing. When gas sinks down onto the black hole, it crams in, it heats up, and it generates a lot of light, which we call a quasar. But that light then pushes outward on the gas. It prevents it from falling in. And very quickly, you develop this equilibrium that regulates the amount of gas that can fall into a black hole. And once again, when we take our very naive calculations and we say, okay, just spitball in here, you know, working stuff out on the back of the envelope, if we assume a certain population of stars that then turn into black holes, uh, you can estimate a merger rate from that, and then you can estimate how much gas uh, these black holes can start accreting onto each other, uh, you come up short. It makes it it's very, very difficult to build such large black holes in so little time. And so there's other ideas. Maybe it's something boring. Um, maybe you know our our naive calculations of how quickly gas can flow into a black hole are off. And it's simply a matter of, yeah, black holes can you know suck in more matter than we naively assume. You know, maybe that's it. That's the entire solution to the riddle. 
maybe there's something more exotic going on. Maybe star formation proceeds very differently in the early universe. Maybe dark matter gets involved and directly collapses into giant black holes. Uh, maybe there's something even more exotic, like different forces or different particles uh, entering the equations that are affecting the evolution of the early universe. Uh, but aren't so present in the modern day universe. And so all of these ideas are on the table. And all of these ideas are why we built the James Webb. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to to learning more about this process. And hopefully the uh, the data that we're getting out will help constrain these models and and direct us to what actually is going on. Because it's very interesting and, and exotic, the, these exactly. huge black holes. To, you know, we're learning so much. I love, I love the the process of discovery. It's it's definitely what drew me to science as well. So you are are very multidisciplinary uh, in your work. You, you are working with a modern dance company. Uh, do you dance yourself, or is, are you more of the? <laughs> I do not. Uh, no one wants to pay money to see me. So that that's a but no, I love outreach. I love science communication. I love explaining what we've learned about the universe to anyone who will listen. And so in that context, I've authored two books with a third one on the way later this year. I've hosted several TV shows. I have my own podcasts, like you mentioned. I write articles all the time. And I like working with artists because working with artists, one, is just fun uh, to intersect with people outside of my discipline. And we get to develop interesting ideas and projects that reach new audiences. So, you know, I, I give public talks all the time. I can pretty much tell you the kind of person that's going to show up to a public talk. And I can tell you the kind of person that will see the ad for the talk and never even consider it, never even think like, oh, this might be interesting. But when I work with artists... I get to bring all the art geeks in and expose them to something new and different. And that's really, really rewarding. And so in this case, I started a collaboration with Siren Modern Dance in New York City about, oh, wow, it was almost five years ago, uh, six, five or six years ago when we were first introduced uh, by a mutual friend. And they had already been interested in science and art collaborations. I had already been interested in science and art collaborations, so it was a perfect match. And we developed, over the course of a couple of years, um, a performance exploring the nature of time, which we felt was very ripe for this interdisciplinary work. Because time is one of these subjects that... Yeah, science has a lot to say about the nature of time, about memory and our perception of time and the physics of time and relativity and the arrow of time. And there's, so there's plenty for me as a scientist to say, but then there's plenty uh, that is left unsaid by science, that there's this part of the aspect of time that we simply experience and we intuitively know and understand, but we have a difficult time explaining it and, and quantifying it. And so there's a lot to the nature of time that I can approach as a scientist and a choreographer can approach as a dancer. So we uh, work together uh, to create a performance. It's called TikTok. 
And it's, it is, it's set to Mozart. It's set in four pieces. Uh, I do narrate the beginning. I go on stage. I talk about some of the cool physics behind time. Uh, dancers are on stage with me, interacting with me. Uh, I leave the stage. The dancers take over for a while. Then halfway through, I come back with the music, with narration, uh, with movement. Well, we've had, it's such a, a beautiful performance, and we've had the opportunity to share this uh, with audiences around the world. Just last year, we got to serve as U.S. cultural ambassadors to the World Expo in Dubai, and so we got to perform it on the, the world stage. Very cool. Uh, that is definitely a unique method of outreach. I mean, I, I love being involved in scientific outreach and Helping to under helping people to understand the the scientific method, and that's why I started this podcast. It's a bit of a pandemic project. You've been extremely successful in your uh, outreach. You have your own podcast, Ask Ask a Spaceman. Uh, what inspired you to to start, and how long have you been working on that? Oh yes, Ask a Spaceman is has just turned seven years old, and. I was in the middle of my second postdoctoral research program. I had just finished my PhD and I did a short-term research position at the Institute for Astrophysics in Paris. And then I had just started a second short-term research position at the Trieste Observatory in Italy. And well, I was doing the normal thing, doing research, applying for faculty jobs. and. I had always had this uh, itch for doing outreach, for public speaking. It was something I had always enjoyed. And I was a fan of podcasts. I had been listening to podcasts for years at that point. I thought, why not? Like, well, I'll just give it a shot. I'll just buy a microphone, download audio editing software, and just make it up and see what happens. And I over, I remember over. In uh, academic break over Christmas, over the holidays, uh, seven years ago, I just wrote seven episodes and recorded them and then put them out into the world. And then I emailed, I sent a personal email to every single person on my contact list, just saying, Hey, I started a podcast. Hope you find it interesting. If you do, you please share. And yeah, it was just so cool, uh, so organic. And very quickly, it developed a really fantastic audience um, that has really opened a lot of opportunities for me. I mean, with that audience, I can I, I have a core, I have a base, I have Patreon supporters that um, now provide a substantial chunk of my income. And now, seven years later, uh, all of my income comes from outreach and science communication. So my research, my professorship positions are adjunct positions. Uh, they're unpaid. They are so I can maintain my research line. Uh, but what I pay my mortgage with and my car payment and uh, you know dinner for the family is through science communication. And it all started with that podcast. Wow, that's that's amazing. So what I mean. Ask a spaceman. Is it so? Is it a an interview style podcast? How how do you uh, how do you set it up and and do you you answer people's questions? 
Yeah, exactly. So people ask me questions on social media, uh, hashtag ask a spaceman or any of my social media handles, or they just go to the website, askaspaceman.com or send me an email, just however you want to just ask me a question and I keep track. I keep a list of all the questions. And then every month I pick two topics and, and go with it. And so far, I have a backlog of only 560 questions or so. Uh, so eventually, I'll, I'll, I suppose I will exhaust the supply of questions. But as long as people are asking me questions, I'm going to keep doing the show. And you've hosted TV shows. Is that as a result of your success in your podcast? Or how did you, how did you get to become a, a television host? Yeah, this, uh, you know, the the more I did the podcast, uh, the more opportunities I had. And so I would get asked to appear on local TV stations, uh, you know, on, on local news to explain science stories. And then I got connected through, I have no idea, to, to national news organizations. And I started uh, doing more videos on my my YouTube channel and just just putting myself out there more and more. And producers, and also another important thing I did is to start writing articles on popular science outlets about topics, various topics. And so producers, when they're looking for, they're doing their research uh, for various episodes, they come across me, they come across my videos, they come across my work, they come across my articles, and they'll just drop me a line. and. Those conversations have led to, uh, you know, most of the time those conversations lead nowhere because creating TV shows is a, a very dark and mysterious art. Uh, but some of those conversations have led to some very fruitful things. So I've been able to be an on-camera contributor for How the Universe Works. I had my own show uh, for a while with uh, Discovery Networks called Space Out. I I've have digital series with Ars Technica. Um, called the Edge of Knowledge, and you know, there's more projects always under discussion and under and subject to further exploration and funding opportunities. And it's just this fun and unexpected angle that I would have never planned for in my PhD training. Indeed, yeah, that, that's well beyond the the, the training range of a, of a scientist. They don't. <laughs> That's one thing. One one thing that in grad school they don't teach you is how to speak to journalists or how to speak to the public. Right. How did you learn that? How did you go about? Is it just something natural that you a skill that you had, or did you did you do any background work on that? How did how did you get good at this? Oh yeah, it's something I am learning every day and continuing to evolve in. I have absolutely no formal training in public speaking or speaking to the media or presenting science concepts. Uh, science communication is a part of every scientist's training, but that communication is to other scientists. So it's a part of our job to be writing emails to collaborators, to presenting talks at conferences and workshops, uh, to uh, create posters and to write papers. Uh, so communicating science is not formally taught in science but it's something you learn on the job because that is part of surviving in the world of science um and that extends to grant applications as well like 
a grant application is trying to convince someone to give you money for your awesome idea. And that's very, very persuasive uh, uh, style of writing. And so I took what I had already been informally trained in, in science communication and and applied it to social media to tv interviews to uh, articles to books and what i've discovered through my own work is that i'm i'm not doing any more or less science communication than any of my peers i just have a different audience Mm -hmm. what one thing i've uh, observed i guess is that you know, to to speak to other scientists, to write papers, we are trained to highlight the uncertainties in our work and to highlight you know, where we can be wrong and to be, you know present both sides of an argument, supposedly unbiasedly. Um, and in a lot of cases, when scientists talk to the media and people, they come across as indecisive because of this. Um, how do you? Uh, style your communication do you do you are you aware of this issue do you uh communicate differently to the public than you would to other scientists actually yeah like when i'm speaking to a a journalist i know that the journalist wants answers and doesn't want ambiguity it doesn't want error bars uh and so i try to uh give firm answers but couched in in enough um you know, safety nets of, of so I, I faithfully represent what we know and what we don't know. But when it comes to my podcast, for example, or books, these are the perfect opportunities to dig into the nuance, to, to get into the conflicting views, and that there isn't always an answer. And in fact, there's almost never an answer. And it's okay and to uh, celebrate the viewpoint of a scientist where all beliefs are provisional, where the evidence can change your mind, where uncertainty um, you know, makes things more complicated and there aren't simple answers. We do not live in a simple world. And I think it's a mistake to pretend that we do. And science can't provide all the answers and the scientific method can't provide all the answers. And so I try to find opportunities in all of my outreach to celebrate that and to highlight that and to remove this fake assumption that science can give an authoritative, definitive answer and we never need to debate it again. Because that is simply not how the world works, and it's not how science works. Yeah, it, it's definitely uh, uh, an important uh, message to get across. And you know, science is effectively applied skepticism, and skepticism has a very bad name in, amongst the general populace. You're, you're you're fighting against people that are pushing for faith over skepticism and you know skeptics are are usually the bad guys if you watch you know the x-files uh they you know the the skeptics are the are always wrong and the truth is out there so it you know that's something that i try to highlight in in my podcast is is that skepticism is is a way of knowing things it's a way of gaining certainty about things and it's a it's a method that we apply 
to get more confidence about this, the things that, that do come out. Uh, how, how do you uh, address that sort of thing? Yeah, it's this never-ending discussion. It's, it really is uh, allowing people to be uncertain and allowing my results or my answers to be, you know, not firm or fixed and to be provisional and to highlight that this is the point. This is one of the things that makes science so powerful is that our beliefs are provisional, is that the evidence can change our mind. That, is, that flexibility, that adaptability allows us to very quickly learn new things. And that is the, the secret ingredient of science. That is its superpower. And so communicating that superpower and, and communicating that, that secret sauce, that secret ingredient uh, is essential in everything I do. Um, and so I try in all of my outreach to create that atmosphere where the audience is embedded in the scientific viewpoint of the world and they can see the world through a scientific lens. And it looks very, very different than the world is seen through other lenses. And that's really cool. And so one of my favorite things is when I'm giving a live presentation and I always carve out almost half the time in my presentations for just open questions to just let people ask me questions because it's a very, very special place where people can feel free, feel comfortable, feel safe enough to admit their ignorance and become a scientist because uh, the life work of a scientist is one of perpetual ignorance and perpetual question asking. And that's a very special uh, space that I try to create very interesting. So as a successful outreach and podcast host, um, do you have any wisdom that you can share, any lessons learned that you would have liked to have known two years in uh, that you could, you could uh, put onto my, uh, onto my thinking? <laughs> oh, yeah. I would say that if, you know, if I could go back seven years and, and talk to my former self about what this journey would be like. I would say it's a combination of being patient and being flexible. Um, no two years look the same in my career. So some years I'm very busy with, with TV work and on-camera work. And some years I'm writing, focusing on writing a book. In other years, I'm writing, uh, just focusing on the podcast and growing the podcast. And all of these opportunities are chances to connect science with people and to really uh, bring science to them in a way that they can understand and that no one method is more powerful or uh, more special than the other. They're, they're all valid, they all connect and people are gonna approach science in different ways and at different times. And it's important to meet people where they are. And so to just take time, allow the audience to find you and to uh, build that niche. Okay, thank you. So I think from from looking at your interests and, and, and looking at some of your uh, podcasts, 
you're interested in 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 the big questions uh, where did the universe come from uh, what is consciousness we both recently had uh, podcasts looking at the intersection of quantum mechanics and consciousness and i had some some really mind bending interviews and i and one of one of the benefits of doing a podcast is i get to speak to experts that i would not necessarily ever get to speak to were i not in this position so i i feel very uh, lucky to be able to to speak with all of these experts and so much, I learned so much about this. So this is almost kind of a, a greedy pleasure for me to, to be able to do these interviews. So I'm just wondering if you want to share what, what you learned in, in, in quantum mechanics and consciousness and, and your, your work on that subject. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, none of my research has, has touched quantum mechanics specifically. Uh, but that said, quantum mechanics ends up touching all of physics. So yes, even in trying to understand the early conditions of the universe, um, you know, quantum mechanics shows up. And at some point, you always have to use quantum mechanics. And uh, uh, recently, I did a very long series on my podcast uh, connecting uh, the meaning to quantum mechanics, trying to explore what does quantum mechanics actually teach us about the universe. And quantum mechanics is this very, very subtle and interesting place in physics where we have the mathematical machinery to make predictions, verify against experiments, know that we're on the right track as, as the, the bones of any physical theory is, is math and mathematical predictions, a framework for making predictions. Uh, and, you know, quantum mechanics shares that with every other kind of physics out there. Every kind of physics has some mathematical structure behind it that we use to actually make predictions. But where quantum mechanics stands out is that we can't interpret what the math is telling us. So in, in the other fields of areas of physics, we have the equations and we can look at the equations and we can translate those equations into words. We can say, oh yeah, 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 yeah. So, so we have all these equations, general relativity. What it's telling us is that there's a space-time and it's a four-dimensional fabric that bends and warps in the presence of mass and energy. Like we can, we can just tell that story. And it links up with mathematics. Quantum mechanics, every time we try to tell a story based on the mathematics of what's really going on, we end up with nonsensical and contradictory We end up with absurdity, with things that simply don't make sense. And this has been a struggle for quantum mechanics ever since the development of quantum mechanics. The very founders of quantum mechanics were arguing about interpretation as soon as they had developed mathematics. And one of the biggest questions in quantum mechanics is that uh, there is this central role in the theory for the act of measurement. I run an experiment. I measure the result. And this process of measurement is very, very special to the theory. It's this discrete event that happens that transforms this uh, cloud of uncertain probabilities into 
an answer, you know, a, an electron hitting a part of the screen. That uh, process of observation or measurement is not clearly defined in the theory itself. The mathematics doesn't tell us what is a measurement, what is an observation. And when we try to interpret what is an what, what does it mean to make an observation? What does it mean to make a measurement? Uh, we run into all sorts of weird stuff that doesn't make any So there have been attempts over the past 100 years to explain what is a measurement, what is an observation. When it comes to consciousness, one idea that's floated out there is that observation or measurement requires the presence of a conscious observer that there is something special about consciousness that sits outside of normal physics as we would understand it and comes into play and creates the act of of quantum measurement uh this idea is not so hot in physics because in physics we we have a physical view of the world and to say that consciousness exists outside of the physical view of the world would, would mean that there is something outside of physics, that there's something that does, is not subject to the laws of physics. In a strict physical view of the universe, you know, this idea doesn't make a lot of sense. But there's no such thing as a strict physical view of the universe. Uh, many people believe in the concept of a soul. And the soul, by definition, is not bound to uh, the, you know, laws of physics and laws of nature. It, it exists as, separately and differently than the physical universe. A lot of people believe in free will and believe that they can create their own actions and make their own decisions. Uh, these decisions would, in some sense, be outside of the laws of physics because this is an action you know, that comes from nowhere. I just make the decision. There's nothing preceding that decision that, that forces that decision. Um, this gets into very interesting philosophical discussions of the nature of consciousness, the nature of free will, uh, the fundamental natures of reality. Is there something separate than the physical? Um, there is no there is no answer to that question and so there is uh, so far no answer to the question of uh what role does consciousness play if any in quantum mm. yeah i've i've learned from from my series of, of podcasts on the topic and my series of interviews with experts in in such diverse fields that there's so many opinions and speculations on where consciousness comes from, but very little factual information that we can hang our hats on. I, I think in, in this field, we're not yet at the point where we're asking the right questions. I, I think there, there are a few folks who, who, who will use quantum mechanics as a magical sort of god of the gaps to explain consciousness, and they wave their hands and say, there be dragons. Uh, <clears throat> but I think recent advances in quantum computing, where we're, we're actually using the, the mathematics of quantum mechanics to make new computers that, that operate in, in, in a strange way compared to what we call our classical computers, uh, are showing that quantum computing is, is just another physical method to, to compute. Uh, 
And, it, you know, it, although it is different and it's based than a classical computer, it's still, you know, a physical process. It still follows physical laws. Why do we believe that quantum mechanics makes it easier to explain consciousness? It's just this collapse, this uncertainty in the, in the description of collapse in the quantum mechanical theory. That's that's basically uh, where we're, where people want to hang on to. Is that is that effectively what you've learned? Yeah, it's it's uh, there's this mystery over the nature of measurement, and ultimately, there's some human being making the measurement. So maybe there's a connection between the two, and. Um, if there's a connection between the two, that connection can go both ways. Maybe we can use consciousness to explain quantum mechanics, and maybe we can use quantum mechanics to explain consciousness. It's not an outright ridiculous idea because, let's face it, we don't understand quantum measurement and we don't understand consciousness. So maybe so it's worth a shot to keep, to keep looking into and investigating uh, to see if there is a special connection there. Maybe something will turn out out of that, maybe not. But the only way to find out is to find out. We actually have to explore these ideas and find their consequences and look for ways to, to test this or rationalize it or, or, or um, judge if it's a, a good idea or not. The only way is to sit down and, and work it out. This is the grand tradition of philosophy going back thousands of years. You can't you can't decide if one idea is better than the other until you explore the idea. Yeah. I think, uh, for, from what I've learned, most of the stuff that, you know, most of the fruitful, uh, areas of investigation where we're actually making progress and understanding or learning things about consciousness is in investigating the neurobiology of, of anesthesia. I think one of the, one of the best quotes I heard was that the only thing we know about consciousness is it goes away when we apply anesthesia. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and one of my favorite interviews was, was with uh, Dr. Luca Turin, who uh, actually is uh, a scientist who revolu revolutionized the science of smell. Uh, and his uh, groundbreaking work showed that um, the smell receptors in our nose aren't just responding to the shape of proteins. They're actually responding to um, the, uh, the vibrations of the molecules as well. Um, and, you know, they're actually acting like a, uh, a Fourier transform infrared spectrometer in, in determining, in, we actually respond to smell in a way that's, that doesn't correlate with the shape of the proteins, which was really amazing. And he's extended this. He's done um, measurements in fruit flies uh, under anesthesia, applying anesthesia to fruit flies. And he's, he's measuring electron spin resonance. He's putting these fruit flies in an electron spin resonance machine. And the electron spin resonance is, is occurring while they're consciousness. And when they apply the anesthesia, it goes away. And this is amazingly cool stuff. I found this like you know, my jaw dropped when I, when I heard about this work and it's, it's, it's quite interesting stuff. So there's, there's some fruitful work going on. I'm looking forward to, to seeing where it leads because, you know, electron spin polarization is, is one of these things like, you know, quantum mechanically linked stuff. It's, it is, you know, we're looking at some very interesting physics here that a lot of people didn't think would be, you know, associated with consciousness. Uh, but, it, you know, at this point we're in a lot of speculation land so i'm i'm excited to see what comes out um so for you what what's next what are you working on uh, uh in the future 
<laughs> uh, well, uh, today I'm rehearsing a new podcast episode on uh, the nature of black hole shadows, which is going to be a fun topic, and the uh, the ongoing debate of, of human versus robotic exploration of the solar system. And yeah, and I'm also uh, finishing up the final edits uh, for my next book, which will come out in the fall. And uh, you know, meeting with my literary agent to figure out what my next project, my next pitch is going to be. Uh, lots of conversations. Uh, I just got back from a string of uh, public appearances and public talks uh, around the world. I went on a little mini tour that was really, really fun. So I'm enjoying uh, just working from home for a while while I uh, rest and relax and then I'll hopefully get out, out there again. Excellent. That sounds black hole shadows. What's a black hole shadow? Can can you give me a scoop? Yeah, the black hole shadow is the what we perceive to be the event horizon, which is actually much much larger than the actual black hole because of the extreme bending of space time. Oh, okay. Very cool. Very cool. That sounds like a a lot of exciting work for you. Uh, I. I appreciate you coming on the show and, and talking to us about your work. Um, you know, I love learning from, from other experts and, and finding out, you know, what you've done and, and, and all of the cool work you're doing. So for spending the time and coming on with me, I'll, I'll send you a Rational View t-shirt. You can... Uh, oh, so cool. Have. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page at patreon.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.